You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the Old Testament book, Song of Solomon. Here's Nate. Well, myths abound when it comes to sex and marriage and relationships. So many in our modern world don't think that there's any possibility of a long-term relationship being a modern reality. But the Bible teaches us that wherever you find two people who love Jesus, who are willing to put him and each other first, there is the possibility of a strong covenantal love between that man and that woman. Not just a quantity of days in their marriage, but a quality that grows over time within their marriage. Another myth of our modern world is that you cannot be expected to wait for your wedding to engage one another sexually. In fact, so many people believe that it is unwise to wait until your wedding day to have a sexual relationship together. But the Bible teaches just the opposite. And the Bible teaches that it is very possible for a man and a woman to be expected to wait for that day. Another myth, I think, of our era is that sex really doesn't mean all that much, that it can be casual. But the reality is that it is never casual. It is of significant importance, and God has designed it to be so. But when we watch Solomon and his bride come together, the two as one flesh, we're seeing something beautiful and something glorious. And part of the reason that it's so glorious is because they have preserved and protected and defended this particular day. Now, in Eastern weddings, they operated differently from our marriage ceremonies. There basically are three phases to that Eastern wedding. The first phase, you could say, would be the wedding procession. This is where the bride would be led by the groom to the home. The groom would show up, gather his bride, take her back to their new residence. Then there would be a wedding feast that would last a week or longer. And then at some point there, more than likely the first night of the wedding feast, you would have the consummation of the marriage. So the wedding procession, the wedding feast, and the wedding night. Now, the Song of Solomon, interestingly enough, includes the procession and maybe hints at the feast, but that is not included. What Song of Solomon includes is the procession and the night, the two things that are most intimate between the man and the woman. Now, here at the end of Song of Solomon, chapter 3, verse 6 through 11, we will see the girl carried in procession to her new home, to her groom. So what we're seeing here is the wedding procession itself. It begins with a very narrative kind of note, as if the narrator is a spectator watching this event. When it says in verse 6, what is that coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the fragrant powders of a merchant. So we've been hearing over and over again in the text, not to stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Well, 
This is the time for it to be stirred up. This is the time that love pleases. And so now it's time for them to stir up their love for one another. The question is, what is that coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke? Now, the wilderness speaks of so many things biblically. You see Israel being purchased by God out of the wilderness as they wandered there for 40 years before they went into the promised land. You see Elijah the prophet coming out of the wilderness, John the Baptist coming out of the wilderness. Even Jesus had his wilderness temptation. Here, Solomon emerges from the wilderness as if to say, our relationship has gone through the pain and the difficulty and the time of testing. And now we've passed the test and we are entering into the promised land. Now, what she sees coming up from the wilderness is something like columns of smoke perfumed with myrrh and frankincense with all the fragrant powders of a merchant. Now, smoke, and this isn't a difficult one for us to imagine, knowing what we know of God's word, but this smoke has to be some kind of allusion to the glory of God within Israel. He would lead them with the pillar of smoke or the cloud uh, in their presence whenever God's glory would manifest itself upon the tabernacle or the temple, there would be a column of smoke. And here at the wedding procession, there is this column of smoke. Now, it actually wasn't the direct glory of God, but it was smoke that was made of myrrh and frankincense and fragrant powders. And so there would be this overwhelming sense of beautiful smell that was there. It was very costly. No expense was spared. And all of this is highlighting a couple of beautiful things. First of all, it's highlighting that this decision was of such great import that there is no expense that is held back in honoring this important moment in the life of Solomon and his bride. But the other thing here is that the glory of this moment is emblematic of what they're entering into in this relationship. And I think that it's important for a man and a woman to work very hard to make sure that this day, the day of their wedding, is a glorious day. I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to go to a wedding ceremony between two people who have already been even openly living together, doing life like that together. I don't know about you, but for me, it just steals the glory of the moment. There's, I think, something instinctive within us to where we know this day really doesn't mean all that much. You've already come together. You're already enjoying one another physically and sexually. And so if you're willing to do all of that without a covenant, what's going to stop you from breaking the covenant or the promise that you make here in this moment. I think believers need to work hard to make sure that the day of their wedding is a glorious day. You've got to resist the temptation to cohabitate. You have to resist the temptation to engage each other sexually before marriage. 
You have to resist the temptation to give yourself to anyone else sexually. You know, what you do in the years before your marriage can help preserve the sanctity, the holiness, and the glory of this day. Let it be that your life is preparing for this moment. But then then I think after getting married, there is a glory of that day that must be protected and maintained by the married couple. They have to make sure that they understand that their spouse is not there to complete them in the sense that you're great, you're wonderful, you're perfect, and now your spouse is just there to realize your perfection. No, you have to work to understand. We made a covenant to one another. This person is going to help me to grow and to be changed and to be transformed and to honor that day is of utmost importance. You know, in the Bible, we have various reasons for marriage. The first reason given really is the reason of companionship. It is not good that man should be alone. Also, there is help in life. I will make him a helper, God said, comparable to him. We know that sex is part of God's design for marriage. The two come together and are one flesh. We know that God desires godly offspring, that this is part of the reason for marriage, and that a marriage is designed to bring glory to God. The way that we operate within our marriage speaks of the love of Christ for the church. But we also know that God desires for that marriage to bring us to a place of sanctification, that we would grow in our walks with the Lord, and God has gifted your spouse to you for that very reason, for that very purpose. Now in verse 7, she goes on and she says, Behold, it is the litter of Solomon. Now, before she describes Solomon, I just want to point out that a central, if not the central figure of this wedding ceremony was not the bride, but was the groom. He is described, he will describe her in a moment, but he is described, he is central, his preparations are key to this day. And I'm not saying that I think that it's somehow the biblical mandate that a man would be the one to plan the wedding or that all of a sudden men should be the ones to start walking down the aisle while the bride waits on the stage for him to come walking down the aisle. I don't want to take that away from any bride, but I just say that to say that I think it's good to realize that the groom is very important to the success and the health, not just of the wedding day, but of the marriage itself. And so often the groom will just be a forgotten piece to the puzzle. And so to remember, here's Solomon. He is leading. He is pushing things forward. Just an incredible man. Now, when she sees him, she says, here's the litter of Solomon. Around it are 60 men, some of the mighty men of Israel, all of them wearing swords and expert in war, each with his sword at his thigh against terror by night. And so what you see here is that all around this caravan are these men who are expert in war. They've got swords and they can fight. And what this speaks to us 
is of protection, obviously, that Solomon was offering protection to his bride. He was not going to carry her from her home nation to Jerusalem without protection. He wasn't going to take any chances. He was going to watch over her. He was going to protect her life. And I think that it's what a husband does to offer protection to his bride. You know, economic provision. This might be something that is a blast from the past, but I believe that economic provision rests squarely upon the shoulders of the husband, providing for her, caring for her, defending her. And of course, in days, at least in my country, where more women are graduating from college than men are graduating from college, that, of course, will be a challenge and a struggle for a husband to provide for his family. And, of course, we live in a culture and world where dual incomes are so often the accepted norm and, and all of that. And each couple needs to make their own decisions. But for a husband to protect his bride and say, I am going to care for you. I'm going to defend you. I'm going to provide for your life. He'll provide for her financially. He'll get medical insurance or life insurance if he needs to, so that if he were to die, she'd be provided for housing for her, her basic needs to lend towards safety, a home that she can live in safely, future savings, and just watching over his bride. I remember reading of a man who, in the glove box of their vehicles in his family, you know, where they would put the registration and insurance information for the car, he also put a little note in there with that information. And the note just kind of went something like this, you know, dear sweetie, I realize that if you need this registration or this insurance card, you may be in trouble. Perhaps you got pulled over. Perhaps you got in a car accident. Here's what I want you to do. And just walking her through the steps. Don't panic. Don't be alarmed. And just walking her through the steps of what to do. And I just remember reading that thinking that's altogether just lovely and beautiful. That this man would protect his bride and defend his bride. And so Solomon does that for his gal. Notice also that Solomon is surrounded by really strong men, good, godly, able men of war. And who is around you on the day of your wedding says a lot about you. And, you know, you can tell a lot about a person judging by their groomsmen or their bridesmaids, who they spend time with, who they consider themselves close to. And to surround yourself with good friends who will help keep you in check is a healthy thing for a husband and a wife to do. Not only was this large group going to be involved in protecting the bride and groom on their way to Jerusalem, but it says in verse 9, the King Solomon made himself a carriage from the wood of Lebanon he made its posts of silver, its back of gold, its seat of purple. Its interior was inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. So here we see Solomon as being the one responsible for building this carriage. And it seems to be emblematic, don't you think, of the relationship itself. He is involved. He is building. And the thing he builds here is elaborate and expensive. It's detailed. 
He gave her the best that he had. You know, I believe that the active leadership of Solomon, the active leadership of any groom is life-giving to the relationship. Way back in the book of Genesis, when Adam and Eve fell into sin, there's a catastrophic line that is mentioned. You might remember the moment where Satan dialogues with Eve and is tempting her and wooing her into eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when the temptation had fully sunk root inside of her heart, it said, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And what you see right there is you see the passivity of Adam in that moment of great and grave sin. He was there, apparently, right by her side as she was experiencing temptation. He was silent. When she handed him the fruit, he ate of it and followed her leadership rather than assuming leadership himself. God had told Adam, the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And Adam had a decision to make. And rather than speak up, he passively watched. And as he watched, his family was led into sin, which as his family means that we were led into sin and brokenness and fallenness as a result of that decision, as a result of that passivity. And you know, the reality is that broken and lost mankind, we are by our nature, we have a passivity about us. It has infected and invaded our hearts. Men will battle lust, absolutely, but we will battle passivity. And now I know that some men are overly aggressive. I think they're just overcompensating for their passivity. It's faux masculinity. It's not the real thing. Instead, what God is looking for is men who are willing to lead, willing to be instruments of peace and righteousness and patience and servanthood within their family. Solomon steps up to the plate and he is blessing and ministering and leading his future bride. And what he was before the marriage and what he was during the wedding is what Solomon would be in their marriage itself. And so to be a leader, to be strong, and to resist that passive state, I think is helpful for any groom. Lead where God has asked you to lead. Notice that the caravan or the carriage had an interior that was inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. It was inlaid not with infatuation, not with romance, not with lust or a contract. It was inlaid with love. And the reality is that what God is looking for, what God has designed, is that a man and a woman would come together and have covenantal love with one another. Not an emotion. Not an emotion. You see, so often people think of love as something that is just a purely emotional experience. You know, I love weddings so much. They're such a beautiful experience, such a wonderful thing to be a part of, to see 
a man and a woman coming together and enjoying one another. All of the people of significance and a couple's life found in one room. It's just a beautiful thing. And done correctly, it can be a great picture of Christ and his church. It's important to remember that the love that is going to be confessed at that wedding ceremony needs to be a covenantal love as opposed to a contractual love. You see, in a contract, there is a 50-50 partnership. You know, I do what I'm going to do. You do what you're going to do. And if you keep up your end of the bargain, I will keep up mine. There's what I will give to you if you give to me. And just sort of a you do this and I will do that contractual kind of understanding. And of course, what ends up resulting in that kind of relationship is a sense that if you break your contract, then I am free to break mine. But in a covenant, both parties are all in. It's not 50-50, it's 100-100. And I will give 100 and be there at 100, even if my spouse is not giving 100 themselves. It is a true till death do us part kind of relationship. You know, in this modern world, people are slowly but surely deleting the till death do us part portion of the vows. People are beginning, I'm told, to say things like, for as long as our marriage shall serve the common good, or I promise to be loyal as long as love lasts, or until our time together is over. But in a covenant, you are absolutely giving yourself to one another. It's a powerful thing as you lay your life down for the other. Now, Paul talked about this covenant in Ephesians chapter 5. He said in verse 22 that wives would submit to their own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So a wife makes that commitment. Not that I'll follow you as long as you're being an excellent leader, but I will follow you. I will give my life to you. That's what I am committing and covenanting to you. And a husband says, okay, well, husbands, verse 25 of Ephesians 5, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. So the husband enters into this covenant to sacrificially, like Jesus, love his bride. And to love your bride like Jesus, to make that covenant, to make that commitment to her is so important for the overall health of the marriage. How did Jesus love the church sacrificially? Well, we know, for one, that he left his position of comfort. You know, sometimes being a husband will hurt. You're no longer a boy, you're now a man. So when it comes to finances or the future or your time, there will be moments of pain. 
there will be moments of sacrifice. You will leave your position of comfort. Jesus incarnated for the church. He became flesh and dwelt among us. He did everything that he could to understand us. Peter tells husbands to live with their wives in an understanding way. We do everything we can to incarnate, so to speak, and to understand our brides. Jesus loved a church that did not yet exist. You might be saying to yourself, well, listen, I would love my wife as Christ loved the church if my wife would simply respect me and submit to me as the Bible tells her to do. But the reality is that Jesus, well, he loved people who had yet to submit to him, had yet to follow him, an imperfect people, and loved them into beauty and loved them into health. Jesus, he spent time with the church. You know, the disciples weren't greatly educated, but they had been with Jesus. Spend time with your bride. And ultimately, of course, Jesus died for the church. And you might say that you would die for your bride, but you will need to be able to go through wayward children and sickness or mental illness, depression, drama with friends. You'll need to go through all of that with your spouse, with your bride. This is the kind of covenant that God is looking for between a man and a woman. This is what love is all about. Now, in verse 11, we conclude this ceremony with a little phrase, Go out, O daughters of Zion, and look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. Now, apparently, on his wedding day or at his wedding ceremony, his mother, who we know biblically was Bathsheba, she comes and she puts a crown upon his head. This is not his coronation as king, but his coronation as a husband. Some people think that this would help us to believe that these were songs, or this was a song that was written in his early years of life before he even became crowned as the actual king in Israel. Just a time of innocence within his life. Notice the excitement, however, of his mother on this day. She was excited about this marriage. You know, her marriage to David was a rather inglorious one. Private, secretive, filled with adultery and murder, lust. A horrible backstory, not one to be proud of. And here she sees Solomon doing things correctly, and she rejoices. She doesn't despise, but she rejoices. And I think in one sense, she's willing to come and to take a back seat now to Solomon's bride. The responsibility has been transferred from the parents to now the bride and groom themselves. They will care beautifully and lovingly for one another. And she, Bathsheba, is excited about this marriage and celebrates it in a powerful way. You know, you want the community to be excited about your relationship. You want them to weigh in on it and to celebrate it and rejoice over it. And certainly Solomon's mother did just that. And so the wedding procession of Solomon and his bride. God bless you. Amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.